You are listening to Dearest Benjamin, a fictional podcast series by Verna A. Ringlander. We will begin right after this. Dearest Benjamin, as I write these words and as you read them, I want to fully acknowledge that this may very well be the most painful letter I've ever had to write. I successfully avoided writing for as long as I could stand not to. I really wish I didn't feel so compelled to write it. In fact, I wish I didn't want to write it to you so badly. Unfortunately, I can no longer resist this terrible urge to write you and let you know exactly how I feel about everything and bring you up to date on, well, everything. At the time that I'm writing this, I live across the whole entire Pacific Ocean on the other side of the world from you and almost everyone I know in a place that reminds me so much of where you live there in Texas. It is amazing to me how many years I have gone without thinking of those tawny grass hills and dark red soil until I lived among these here where I wound up. I have this memory burned on my brain of your little black dog standing at the top of a grassy hill with his nose to the wind right before a terrible storm rolled through. It was a picturesque scene and I recall thinking there was nothing I wanted more from that moment. We looked across the prairie and watched as a giant lenticular cloud grew towards us on the horizon, darkening what had been a beautiful and mild summer day. I remember one of us saying to the others that it looked like the end of the world, like a nuclear mushroom cloud about to race us all from existence. I remember so clearly being okay with that. I had thought many times in my teenage angst about how and where I wanted to be when the end of the world came. Until that point, I had only decided that I wanted to be listening to Mazzy Star when the world came to an end. I imagined myself sitting on the roof of the house I grew up in on an old quilt with a jam box by my side blasting holla on repeat. But when I saw that cloud and we all joked about how it was coming for us so ominously, I felt at peace. You were there and we were sitting on the trampoline and our best friends were there. Yes, I remember thinking so vividly. This is how I want the world to end. Here with all of you and laughing and so happy. We were so young and we thought then that we were getting so old only beginning to think of the most serious things and discovering the most precious things. And none of us, neither of us, had lost very much by then, nor had much of anything at stake. At some point, we had to rush into the house and take cover in the basement. But that makes it sound far more dramatic than it actually was, because your basement was where we had all spent those good times, playing video games, watching movies, playing back the videos we had made of our antics earlier that day, playing pool on that old decrepit table. We went into the big room in the basement and watched from the sliding glass door that ominous cloud envelope your daddy's ranch with a hard and terrible rain and loud, angry thunder. 
Your mother crept down the stairs to catch a glimpse of us to make sure we were all safe and inside. There was no way we would be silly enough to go out playing in a rain like that. But I don't blame her for checking to be sure. We could be a little crazy when we were together, so I don't blame her for keeping her distance from us aside from that. The storm was over in about an hour. We watched it silently together, all of us, and it was just as entertaining as the VHSs and DVDs we plowed through that week, the last week before half of us went to college and the other half of you returned to your dorms. Today, the wind is howling outside, and I have large double doors to my right and a large picture window to my left to observe the pelting rain and the bending trees it's not the end of the world, not that sort of feeling. It's like that all too often here. We've had an elusive spring, but the winter was more sunny than usual, so I'm told. We haven't lived here very long, only a few years, but I do remember last winter being longer and darker and much, much harder. Summer came and went like a dream we forgot most of upon waking. Winter is still here, digging deeply into our calendars and taking up more space than it should, elongating itself in fits and starts, while everyone I love back home is putting away swimsuits and enjoying the beginnings of leaves turning and picking out their Halloween costumes. I keep telling myself days like this are winter's death throes, but they keep coming back, well into September, when the weather should be getting nice and warm. I'm sick of it. My daughter is now 10. I'm a mother now, as you know. Rachel loves to invite herself into this room, ask me what I'm doing and expect me to entertain her. I told her I'm writing a very long letter and I've invited her to get her own stationery and write her own letters, overdue ones to my mother particularly. But instead, she scampered away because she knows that all the fun is in pestering me and getting my attention and annoying me until I acquiesce and let her watch television or play video games just to get her to leave me alone. I am wise to this ploy of hers. And I've discovered the perfect way to get her to leave me in peace. Give her a chore to do. Works wonders. She's off pestering her father now. Rachel loves it here, but it is rather boring to live in the country. I remember you having a similar sentiment about your own upbringing. You hated rural life, hated your small town. I clearly didn't listen. I didn't grow up in quite as small a town as yours, as you recall. Madison wasn't large either, but it offered enough of a tease, enough of a peek into rural life to romanticize it for me. It didn't help that my friends' families owned and had access to rural cottages and cabins we would escape to for camping, hiking, hunting, and stargazing on the lake. Watching how your parents lived and seeing how beautiful your family's life was, was instrumental in my persistent urges throughout adulthood to finally, one day, escape to the country permanently. So, here we are. And my daughter is bored out of her mind and already talking about moving to New York City, Los Angeles, Berlin, 
any city that will have her, any she can remember the names of, having been to none of them yet. I remember being like that. You had a brother that moved to New York to pursue acting and did better and got more work than you and your parents anticipated. You were so proud of him. And you had every intention of joining him there in the city as soon as you graduated college, as soon as you saved up the money. I may have even invited myself too because it sounded like the perfect plan to me. I imagined myself joining you there and popping myself down on your couch and sorting out where we would grab dinner. I don't know if I verbalized that to you at the time, but if I did, I doubt you would have objected. And there was at least talk of us at some point of both of us going to visit him there. I remember feeling excited about that. Obviously, none of that happened, but yes, it was fun to think about. I actually came very close to moving to New York City once. I remember telling you that one of the times we spoke on the phone that I was planning to. Now that I think about it, it was probably one of the conversations that pushed you further away. Gio and I had been an item for a few months by then, and he'd lived there for a number of years at that point. It was odd to me that you hadn't looked him up when you'd gone to see your brother because you and Gio had been so close. But I didn't want to pry. Just like your brother, and you for that matter, Gio had wanted to be a professional actor. He had the looks and the talent and the personality, but not the money. <laughs> he worked so hard just to have a place to live and keep the lights on and fell ass backwards into a career that paid his bills being a chef at just the right restaurants in succession. And did you know he just published his own cookbook? I'm not sure how close in touch you two are. Again, no desire to pry. Maybe you didn't realize this, but I made his wife's wedding gown. Beverly hired me to make her a custom dress, but I insisted in taking no payment. It was my gift to them, to Bev and Gio, in an effort to endear myself to her and to put her mind at ease that I had no designs on Gio anymore, no desire for him whatsoever, that he was like a brother to me, which was true, and it worked, because Bev and I became close friends just like that over fittings and fussing over lace and geeking over silk satin and whatnot. And when my time came, Gio and she, they catered my tiny wedding for free. It was the most delicious food I had ever eaten, I swear, even though I only had a few small bites to make sure there was enough to go around. And because I was so nervous, I had so little appetite. When we spoke on the phone, though, Perhaps the very last time. Well, okay, the next to the last time, I know. But the last time we spoke at length. I was on my way to Madison to collect a few of our things before the move. It was a three-hour drive, and we talked at least half the way. I told you all about how Gio and I had fallen so in love and how it all happened so fast. And we both marveled at how hilarious it all was, how ironic, and if only we had known back then, we must have said a dozen times on the call that day. Obviously, that didn't work out either. 
I went to visit Gio over the 4th of July weekend to basically measure his apartment for my furniture and realized none of it would fit. And I don't mean he had a small apartment. It was actually huge for NYC. I mean that Gio and I didn't share the same style of furniture, of communicating, of affection, or sex, or anything. Oh, and there was this one time I got incredibly angry. And no one could blame me. He threw this giant party at his place for the fourth because it had this incredible view of the Manhattan skyline. I invited everyone I knew in New York City, telling everyone I would be moving there soon. You're not going to believe this, but he invited Francesca. They had broken up years prior and she brought her fiance, now husband, And I think I handled it with a whole lot of grace considering the last time I saw the two of them in the same room back in high school, their faces were inseparable. And I was helping Gio cook, a maestro at work, making everyone a delicious meal in his massive kitchen that took over half the living space of his apartment. And he said, hey, honey. And Francesca and I both whipped around and answered, yes. Poor Gio. He just went, I meant my girlfriend. And Francesca said, oh, and continued her conversation. Can you imagine? That whole week in NYC was an absolute bore, though. Who could be bored in NYC? Me, in the wrong relationship. We realized it quickly enough, and it ended that same summer with little drama or fanfare. I broke it off with him because he went back to our hometown to see his family without me, and it really hurt my feelings. Not because he did anything wrong. It was all about style, after all. You must see that. After a weekend-long argument about it, we broke up amicably and kept our promise to stay friends and did exactly that. His wife, Beverly, really is lovely and fits right into the old gang. I adore her. Francesca loves Bev, too, which took time, but was important for all of us to see them get along. They even asked Francesca to be a bridesmaid at the wedding, and everyone looked absolutely stunning up there. I kept a needle and thread in my pocket in case Bev popped a seam or something, which came in handy on the dance floor when Francesca stuck the heel of her shoe through the hem of her bridesmaid's dress. After that, I slipped into the night and went home to sleep because I had a big trip in the morning. I'm telling you all of this because I'm not sure how close you've stayed in touch with Gio, and I wanted you to hear my side of the story. However, I am certain that you likely heard the same exact narrative as mine. A lot of this was on social media, and I think you and Gio are friends. I don't know. I haven't looked at that stuff in a while. I absolutely refuse to. Such a waste of my time and so triggering. I spend my days here abroad, being as creative as I can. I have tried and failed to get my latest play published, which is deflating, so I've given that a rest, at least for now. I've gotten my artwork in a few galleries since moving here, which is great because I hadn't anticipated how hungry their scene would be for Midwestern American artists. I would have guessed I'd be hated or misunderstood. I haven't been. In fact, I have made quite a few connections. All in all, it's been good for me. Lately, however, 
I have been directionless and cannot find the motivation to write another play or sew another dress or paint another piece. I went to a therapist, okay, a really woo-woo one. I should mention that. She did some really wild and weird things to me, but they worked. Just not in the way I would have ever anticipated. She asked me to start writing down all of my dreams upon waking. Admittedly, I loved the challenge. I had always wanted to be the kind of person who rolls over in bed to a nightstand full of books, pulling off a well-worn journal and jotting into it my most innermost subconscious imaginings, which is exactly what I pictured. Instead, what happens is I roll over to a nightstand full of medications and tonics and blister packs of pills and I grab my phone and I read all the text messages from people who seemingly don't remember I'm hours and hours ahead of them and text me while I'm asleep. And by the time I've read all of those and check my email in the news, I've forgotten everything I dreamed about. Sometimes I'll go downstairs and I'll sit here in this room I'm writing to you from now and I'll hold the fancy journal I bought here in my hands and just stare at a blank pair of pages and nothing will come to me. This can go on for longer than I'd like to admit, but yes, hours it seems. I also write down other things she recommended, such as interesting notations about my astrological chart for the coming day. I can stretch this business out until lunch sometimes. I get dis disassociated and distracted and interrupted, and while that annoys me, I welcome it because the last part of the exercise, according to her, is free association writing. That's the part I cannot skip or fake my way through. I thought it would be easy to sit down and do that every day, just sit and write until my hand gets tired. I love to write. I know you do too. I loved your writing, by the way. Inevitably, though, I sit some days and write about the weather. Ah, just as I've done here in this letter to you. Except it's important to what I'm trying to say, I promise. Or I write about my daughter or my husband or just about anything I can think of and never anything of substance. What I hate about this is that new plays aren't being written. My dreams slip away and go unrecorded. And my astrological chart makes absolutely no sense to me. And I'm seeing no patterns there at all. Yet, I cry. If I'm lucky, I'll get so frustrated from the whole thing and I'll just sit and cry and then I'll feel much better. I tell myself that's the whole point anyway, to express my feelings by writing in that damn journal. I've gone back and told my therapist, it's working, I'm definitely expressing myself. But I know she'll never ask to read the journal I'm supposed to be writing, no one ever will. So I get away with just crying instead. It does make me feel better most days. Except that something peculiar started to happen. Some weeks, maybe even some months ago, I have it written down so I could go look, but I don't think it's important. 
I had this bizarre dream about you, Benjamin. It wasn't a bad dream. In fact, it was a rather good dream because I got to see you again. And it has been so long, so very long. And I didn't realize how much and how terribly I miss you. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. We parted ways so long ago. It wasn't clean and it wasn't pretty. I was happy to leave you and everything between us behind, except I wasn't. I was angry. I was hurt. I was more than anything else confused. My God, you hurt me so badly. Why? In the dreams I keep having of you, have kept having about you ever since that first time all those weeks or months ago, my breath escapes my throat and I'm forced to wheeze out whatever it is I want to say to you and my chest and my lungs collapse and my eyes widen and you look at me. You look right at me, right into my eyes and you hear exactly what I'm trying to say to you regardless of the words not coming out and my complete inability to say anything or breathe. Sometimes you speak and you give me an answer. It's always so shocking when it happens. And it's never anything satisfactory, never anything of substance, and leaves me with more questions to ask you as you turn your head and walk away or disappear. And then I awaken. This has started to happen more and more since I moved abroad and it's unwelcome, and it's terrifying. And it seems absurd, but all I want in the dream is to have a long deconstruction of a conversation with you, but you won't let me, or the sunrise won't let me, and fate certainly won't let me, and our circumstances forbid it so firmly that I feel absolutely horrid for feeling that way. Meanwhile, in my waking life, I want nothing more than to forget it all, to go back to it all being forgotten, to leave all of it and all of you in the past, like that untidy mess of photos and letters and stories and mementos I threw in a box and gift wrapped beautifully and then burned it and then buried its ashes. My stupid dreams won't let me they want something different, so opposite, something so grossly destructive and painful that neither of us wants, which is some type of reconciliation. So I filled that fucking dream journal and that free association journal and four more of each, just like them, every day, like a madwoman. I brought them to my therapist and she expressed her sincere disinterest and taking them from me or reading them, assuring me that wasn't her job nor the point of writing these things down whatsoever. I said to her, I just want this to stop. So just stop, she replied. I can't. Because you don't want to? Why is that? I don't know, I answered, and I burst into tears, like I do every time I'm in there with her. 
She'll hand me a set of paints and tell me to get it out of my system on a big piece of paper on the floor on top of a big tarp and encourage me to pick whatever colors I need to get the job done, the job of expressing whatever is coming up, whatever channel has opened for me to get it out, get it out. I'll do that and I'll feel better. I'll go home and I'll make dinner and watch TV with my husband's arm around me and I'll take a shower and find paint still under my fingernails and I'll go to sleep and there you'll be with your nose and your eyes and your awful little smirk. I wish I could just hate once again. So today, I finished filling up a fourth free association journal with my thoughts on the matter and lit a fire in the fireplace and held my stack of journals near the flames, standing so close that my face felt uncomfortably hot. My daughter walked in and plopped herself down by the roaring fire and played with the cat and began asking me her annoying questions. And I ran her out by asking her to vacuum the floors in here because they're filthy from bringing in the wood. She scampered off, leaving me with my miserable pile of journals once again standing nearer and nearer to my fireplace, daring myself to do the thing that will set me free from these thoughts and these memories and these terrible dreams that I wake from gasping for air in a puddle of my own cold sweat. Then I remembered campfires and how that one time I got too close to the fire and my hair caught on fire and you grabbed me and cuffed my head and put it out while all our drunk friends just laughed and laughed. That night, we went to sleep facing each other and smiling, all tucked away in our sleeping bags. You were right next to me, not hiding it from anyone that we had become something our friends might not have realized, but very likely did, and were just waiting for us to get on with it. Who knows? I remembered it, though, how it felt like you saved my life, and I looked at my journals which I had just saved myself from burning, and I thought, that's my life in there. I don't want to burn it all up. If that's true, and I don't want to burn it all up, then answer me this. Why did I set the stack down at that point and grab my stationery and find a good pen, a nice pen with flowing ink, and start writing this letter to you if I don't want to burn my whole entire life down? I will expect an answer in my dreams, I suppose. In case I lose my breath, all my questions I have for you are written right here in this letter. And Benjamin, will you read my mind anyway in my dreams and give me some useless answer so that if you don't answer this letter, then what difference does it make?